welcome to another episode of Portrush Tales. My name is David Martin. One of the uh, discoveries during these investigations into Portrush stories was of the Portrush lifeboat and its dramatic attempts to rescue the crew of the Bergen, a Norwegian vessel. And this is in 1965. Fred Williams wrote up the this, this story from him being on the lifeboat. And in this episode, we're going to hear from Robert McMullen, who was the winchman. He was on land at the lifeboat house, launching the, 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 the lifeboat. And he tells, he remembers the story and tells us of that dramatic event of the, the Bergen incident. And 
the old Lady Scott was not the fastest boat in the fleet, it was only eight knots. And, and the conditions that were there, it's not a great speed. But at least three attempts to get out the harbour. We left the slipway, made the approach to the harbour mouth, and it looked too risky, so they turned back. And, but on the third attempt, they got, they got out, and I was at the bottom of the slip at the time watching. And the thing that hit me very hard was on the third attempt, when they did get out, it was a beam sea of pure white water that hit the starboard side. The boat just went pure sideways and was washed down past the south pier. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, from the south pier onwards, it's very shallow water. Sandbanks there, and I thought, my Christ, she wasn't self-riding then because there was no self-riding device on it. She was more or less an open boat and the only shelter that the cops and, and the engineers had was in the cockpit with two sort of hook-on plastic doors. And it was a totally being sea and the boat went purely right-handled. And I thought, Christ, this is not good. Um, I had visions of it being washed right into the West Bay because she would never have self-righted. And I thought, I'll get out of here and I'll head over and see what's happening. I got about halfway up the slipway when I heard the growl of the diesel engines. And I knew then that at least the propellers were in the water and they had a bit of power. And thank God, it seemed a lifetime, but probably was only about maybe half a minute. I saw the nose of the boat coming up past the south pier again. I knew then, great, head under the sea, she'll make it. And out she went. You talk about relief. You know, it was, it was unbelievable. If you hadn't seen it, you wouldn't have believed it really. And the relief for me of those guys that went out. Still puts a lump in my throat. <sighs> it was sort of above and beyond. Ah, excuse me, man. Right, I was so vivid in my own mind, but even today, the court they did was me young I'm so proud of every one of them. Heroes off. They hit the harbour mouth, the white water and the waves hit her on the starboard side bomb, which meant that Automatically, she would go right to left, so she was capsizing. And that was the thing that worried me, that if she went over being say, the water was getting shallower as the, as the sea pushed her towards the beach, that she maybe wouldn't come, you know, right herself again. So what those guys were feeling, you 
know, when they were on that boat, it must have been as scary as hell. But they must have managed to get her head turned into it. Because once you go being sea, the right hand or the starboard prop would be out of the water. And therefore, you had only have one prop in the water, which wouldn't have been strong enough at eight knots, you know, to get out of it. So there must have been some fluke of nature or that, that when she went the inside, maybe my dad turned the wheel or whatever, but the head of the boat must have come around into it, which meant that the two propellers then would have dug into the water, would have given her the full propulsion to get out to be head on. It, it seemed like a lifetime, and actual fact it probably was well, maybe, yeah, maybe not seconds, but certainly a few minutes. But from she hit the harbour mouth to she disappeared was, a, to me, a very short space of time. Because the, the, the sea on that particular day coming across the harbour mouth was just pure white water and high, high waves. I mean, she was an open deck boat and uh, in front of the cockpit. There was two, uh, I'm trying to think of the word here, two cages, shall we say, that held the ropes inside, you know, inside it, that if you had to get them out and that they were open top, you could just reach in and lift them. Those were, com those were completely washed out. And anything else that was lying loose would, would have gone completely. When the boat was, I wasn't worrying about ropes or boys or anything. I was only too glad to see the lifeboat going past the harbour mountain. I mean, ropes and boys and that can be replaced very, very easily. The radio on the boat or the VHF or uh, that would have been in constant contact with the Coast Guard, you know, letting them know the situation and what was happening. There would also have been an MF with Malin Head, and the Coast Guard would have kept the families involved uh, about what was happening and that everything was safe. And uh, I mean, the Lady Scott, which was a 46 foot 9 Watson type lifeboat, was a very able sea boat. And once you're out in the open water, you plant their depth below you, and you can keep her head to sea and you can control the conditions. You still had to search and come beam sea even out there. But in deeper water, the waves wouldn't have been so broken at the top. Well, that, that, that was normally uh, taken over by the engineer, which would be Gilbert. Gilbert. Mm -hmm. on, on the old Watson, uh, in those days, 65 up to 72, the coxswain had no control. He had no levers to control the, the, the engines, either hit, uh, hard ahead, hard astern, or whatever. He had to give instructions to the two engineers sitting down below him with two gear wheels. So he had been given instructions engineer full ahead or slow down, come into neutral and put port engine full ahead. And it was only after 
I think it was around about 1972 because I I joined them on Hollyhead. They went to pool and got the self-rating bag on, and then they brought the gears up to the cockpit where the coxswain had control of the throttles. And I joined them on Hollyhead, and I think it was 1972 that she brought back with the self-rating bag on and full control down to the coxswain. But Gilbert would have been uh, a combined job, not only engineer, but he would have navigated and he would have been the radio operator as well. Well, after Gilbert unfortunately died, his uh, son Derek took over in 1978. And then again, unfortunately, when Derek died, Anthony took over from Derek. <laughs> but I, I, I was winchman in 1960, and I got on the crew in 61. And that particular day of the outing in 65, because of the conditions, they were a man short. But because I was sort of, much, shall we say, my father's son, and Noble Ruddock was available, who was the district engineer, father, don't, I don't think, wanted two members of the same family on the boat that day because of the conditions. And Noble Ruddock volunteered to go. I was a gentleman and a scholar. Poor Russians, I'm sure you know, coming in is more awkward than going out. So they, they, they make the decision that if they can't come into Poor Russians, they'll go into Greencastle up the foil, where they're warmly greeted and looked after like nobody's business. And what would happen then is that in the morning, they would contact the honor secretary here see what the conditions were like at the harbour mouth, if they were possible, and if they were, then they would head for home. Oh, total relief. <laughs> total relief, but uh, because the Maroons weren't let off, you know, the whole town weren't really aware that the boat was out, because normally, uh, back in 65, that was the signal to, to gather the crew and the, the the noise of those marines, the whole town heard it, and a lot of quickly sort of rushed down to the harbour to see it going out. But because there was a phone call from the honour secretary, a big majority of them were not aware that the boat was out until they read about it probably in the paper the next day or the day after. They're all very, very con. The locals are all very, very conscious of the lifeboat and the service that it provides. And I said that they were. Once they heard of the conditions and what happened, they were totally relieved that it was back and everybody was safe. The on-sec would have notified each of the families and said, everything in the garden is rosy, the boat's leaving Greencastle at whatever time, and it'll be in Portrush safe and sound. And it was only after that, when the boat was rehoused and brought her up on the winch, the damage that was done, Bilge Keel was the looked out over the boat. But I mean those guys deserve it. <laughs> deserve every credit. But it's so vivid in my own mind, but even today, the court they did 
was uh, me young Leo. I'm so proud of everyone. Heroes all.